This is hell. And what better way to start a week of hell than that kind of cacophonous segue? Live from a planet where the press runs headlines with phrases like cool dictator? This is hell, and that's what we are talking about today. A cool dictator. By the way, someone other than... uh, Someone really should do a cover of Sade's cool operator, but replace operator with dictator to do a cover of, like, cool dictator. And maybe we can get Weird Al to do it. But what the hell is a cool dictator? Maybe it's just me, but if you are acting like a tyrannical authoritarian suppressing the rights of the people and subverting democracy, that is definitely not fab or funky or fresh or groovy or fly or fat or lit or gnarly or rad. Even your grandfather's bee's knees or cat's meow, it ain't that either. I'm sorry, but taking control of every branch of a government and then sending the military out to the streets to work hand-in-hand with police, to use a firm hand against the civilian population in order to rein in gang crime and violence. I mean, that does not sound all that awesome to me. Even if that firm hand, or mano dura as it's called, is successful in limiting gang crime, at least for now, that doesn't mean it's straight fire when you are also subverting democracy and targeting the opposition with physical force and illegal and abusive incarceration. If that's not bad enough, let's say this cool dictator was so cool he invested $200 million in his country's money, his country's COVID aid money, into Bitcoin, an investment that of course went bust because libertarians are dangerously not as smart as they think they are. That investment destroyed his nation's economy. So in his attempt to fix the economy, he broke. The cool dictator is now trying to overturn not only the public's hard-fought win over metallic mining, prohibiting the practice to protect their main water supply, but also everything the nation won in their civil war that toppled a dictatorship. A day after his re-election to an unprecedented second five-year term in office, we will be talking about El Salvador's, in reality, not-so-cool-after-all, President Naib Bukele. When we speak with John Kavanaugh, co-author of State of Deception, fact-finding report on El Salvador's detained water defenders, the potential return of poten- uh, environmentally destructive mining, and the state of human rights under the Bukele administration. John is a former United Nations economist. He's the co-author with several other Institute for Policy Studies colleagues of the new report, State of Deception. He is also co-author of 2021's The Water Defenders, How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed, with Robin Brode, who is also one of the many co-authors of the report we are discussing today, again, State of Deception. John is a senior advisor at the Washington-based Institute for Policy Studies, which is a multi-issue research center that works with dynamic social movements to turn ideas into action for peace, justice, and the environment. And if you've been listening to This Is Hell since 1996, you have heard dozens and dozens of people from IPS on the show before. You can find out more about the Institute at ips-dc.org. You can follow them on Twitter at all caps IPS underscore DC. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's show. We always truly appreciate it. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Chris Coolfan. Chris, how are you? How was your weekend? Uh, not the most exciting, but I had a nice time going door to door about uh, talking about people about bring Chicago home. And the one insightful thing about that was I went back near my old neighbor where I grew up, and so some of the folks there, it's they like bring Chicago home, and they're very angry at their economic state. They're angry that their money's going to wars in Palestine and stuff like that, which the anger is justified. But the struggle sometimes with some folks, especially some folks in my own ethnic group, because I, I, I speak, I'm bilingual in Polish, so I, I bring, I talk about bring Chicago home to a lot of Polish folks as well. And but also their anger gets towards the migrants and the refugees from Venezuela and Central America. Wow. And in a sense, like they, what's nice is if you don't talk down to anyone and actually sympathize with their struggle, right? And they, you have a likable personality, even. Uh, they do not all, but a lot of them do end up listening to you. And I've, so there's like three people I actually talked about Venezuelan sanctions, climate chaos, stuff like that. So I, I take pride that I actually open up some minds. But at the same time, it's like, should I be angry at some of those people for you know? For thinking this way, probably to some levels, but at the same time, uh, I'm happy that I'm able to at least open up some minds and see what the real root of the problem is, and it's not the migrants coming here. So, so uh, real, just real quick, tell people what uh, Bring Chicago Home is again. Oh, my apologies. Uh, Bring Chicago Home, uh, basically, it's uh, if a real estate company or just a really rich person buys property for a million dollars or more, there's already kind of a priority 1% tax. Right. And But that gets restructured where that 1% goes into building housing for the homeless, but which by the way, it should be, I think the percentage should be a lot higher, but so it's nothing too radical. But uh, what's nice about that from the blue collar end is basically if you and I decide to buy a house for a million or less, we pay a lower sales tax uh, than we would do now. When, than we would now so. Wow, so it not only forces people who are spending a whole bunch of money on real estate to give money that helps out the unhoused at the exact same time it helps out the working class because it lowers their own taxes when it comes to a sale that's really great but it helps on both ends that's really offend. i did offend one person with it and the guy sells commercial real estate (laughs) and so he had really huge issues with this thing he was polite but like i'm like well Crimea River, I don't know. Exactly. My weekend was very productive. Not only did I get a lot of work done on the show, not only did I get a lot of stuff done I needed to do around the house that I had been putting off for a dangerous amount of time, including some plumbing issues, which I didn't really fix, but I realized that I need a plumber to fix. But I was also able to actually get outside this weekend and have some exercise. The most important part of my very long recovery and recuperation, the first thing I was told when I came to physical therapy from my many lengthy life-saving surgeries two years ago, the very first words of my discharge documents after the final procedure, after the final procedure was finished, you know, were these three words, walking is essential. And because of the nearly 10 straight days of sub-zero temps that we just went through, being busy over the holidays and all that travel, I had not gone for a walk since December. But we made it out and made up for it with a 90-minute, three-mile-plus stroll. 
while walking being the most with walking being the most important part of my recovery not doing so for two months is not good and I had started feeling the effects of all that sitting at my desk without getting up and going outside to stretch my legs and all the other parts that need to be stretched since being cut open and all my insides got moved around and I'm sure my guts would likely benefit from my daily constitutional as well sure I was sore afterwards but the day after our big walk I felt much better while sitting back into my sedentary lifestyle staring at my computer at my desk but more important than me being reminded that walking is essential and that a sedentary lifestyle can kill us all chris what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience as posted on our welcome to the hellhole facebook group page by listener jen d which mega rich person would you eat first how did i get that in there that's last week's question from hell this week's question from hell i'm sorry i apologize i knew there was something wrong with today's reads uh this week's question from hell for our listening audience is same thing from a listener who posted at the welcome to the hellhole facebook group page and that is dan k dan k posted how long will this go on how long will this go on you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can leave it at our Patreon page. You can leave it at our Facebook group page. Welcome to the Hellhole and our Discord community. Leave it at any one of our social media places, and we will share your answer on air. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Chris has this week's hangover cure. Let's hope it's the right one. <laughs> All right. This week's hangover cure is a cure that, unbelievably, we have never suggested in the past. In January, Krishna Priya Pallavi, reporting from New Delhi for Deutsche Well, posted the story, What Causes a Hangover and How Can We Get Rid of It? Krishna writes, One study has found that an effective way to speed up recovery is to, quote, have a poo. Krishna explains, The reason is that ethanol stays around in the stomach and intestines for a long time after consumption, from where it continues to be absorbed into the bloodstream. The authors of the study call this intestinal drinking. The authors state that the intestine absorbs ethanol faster than the liver can metabolize it, meaning that taking a poo is an effective way of evacuating the ethanol in your intestines that has yet to be absorbed into the blood. Krishna concludes, the study suggests having a poo or two is an effective way to alleviate hangover symptoms and reduce the risk of liver damage. That makes this week's hangover cure having a poo or two. <laughs> Coming up, El Salvador is not so cool after all, elected dictator. Chris has our Patreon subscribers' answers to this week's question from hell. We will tell you what happened on last week's bonus podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We will have the past inside the present when contributor Dr. Sebastian Vupper, a historian by trade, or an historian by trade, gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. Chris, what is Seb talking about this week following our talk with John Kavanaugh? Seb looks at the history of one of the world's truly most hellish texts of the recent centuries, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Yikes. Chris will also share who we have confirmed as guests for the rest of this week. And something special is happening that it looks like I will be participating in at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, the bar that hosts all of our weekly meet and greets and all of our annual parties. And I will tell you what that is after Seb and this week's past inside the present. 
your eyewitness to grief. This is hell, and today that's exactly what we are talking about and and who we are talking to, an eyewitness to grief, that grief being suffered by the people of El Salvador if they actually dared to cross the government of President Nayib Bukele, a government that was re-elected yesterday despite its abuses and threats to democracy. Here to help us have a better understanding of what is happening in El Salvador, we are very happy to have on the show John Kavanaugh, co-author of State of Deception, a fact-finding report on El Salvador's detained water defenders the potential return of environmentally destructive mining, and the state of human rights under the Bukele administration. Welcome to This Is Hell, John. It's great to be with you again, Chuck. And that was a beautiful intro you did. We, You really set it up for a good discussion. Well, let's start with uh, all of these stories, the headlines yesterday on Sunday before the votes were even being counted yet. All the stories I saw on the day before yesterday's election were labeling President Nayib Bukele of El Salvador a cool dictator, either in headlines or somewhere in the body of each and every one of the articles I found, to the voters in El Salvador, John, and maybe to the uh, media, too. What makes Bukele a cool dictator? For that matter, what makes any dictator cool? (laughs) Well, so first of all, he's a great self-promoter. He's the one who came up with that term. He calls himself uh, the world's coolest (laughs) dictator. So that gives you a, a little bit of a glimpse into this guy. He's young. He's 42 years old. He wears um, he wears nice polo shirts. He wears a baseball cap backwards. He's a slick talker, and he's a genius on social media. So that's what makes him the world's coolest dictator. This all has to do, though, with your definition of cool, uh, because he's thrown over 75,000 people in jail under the pretext of jailing gang members. Um, But that includes tens of thousands of innocent people. So for those folks and the families of those who've been wrongly incarcerated, he is not cool. Do you think he is setting a precedent for other potential Latin American leaders moving forward? What do you think is the likelihood that using Bukele as a model, we will see the rise of, quote unquote, cool dictators in Latin America or around the world even? Yeah, this is you've jumped straight to the most terrifying aspect of all of this, because he, in essence, is taunting other leaders around the world to copy what he's done. And and let's just talk for a second to make it clear exactly what he's done. He was elected by a majority of votes, a little over 50 percent in 2019. He was elected on the platform of ending the horrific gang violence in that country, also ending corruption, also bringing prosperity to the country. Um, And we should be clear five years later, yes, he has reduced gang killings. He's done number one, but he has not ended corruption. He is, as you pointed out, with the $200 million steal there, he has continued and even increased the corruption and the economy is a shambles. So he hasn't done that, but he was just reelected last night um, by over, it looks like 80% because of number one, because of making the country safer uh, for, for ordinary people. And his taunt to other leaders in the region is, including the United States, is look, you guys tout democracy and multi-parties and having an independent legislature and judiciary as being so great, 
Well, it hasn't made your country safer. And he's pointing his finger at places like Ecuador. You're not safer. Next door in Honduras, you're not safer. Even Chile, a fairly prosperous country, you're, you have an increase in violence. Do it my way. And what he did is he declared what he calls a state of exception. That means he can arrest anybody he wants with no charges. They'll be thrown in jail indefinitely. They will not have access to a lawyer. They will not have access to their families. And it boy, does that terrorize people. In our delegation last October, we found a lot of scared people because in, in essence, he's substituted gang violence with government violence. And yes, for people who couldn't walk around their neighborhoods, this is nice. But for the people who've had relatives wrongly arrested, it's terrifying and yet effective. So th this is the word. He's even tossing this taunt at the United States. He, he was a big fan of Trump. Trump invited him to the White House. He wants Trump back. He doesn't like Biden. Uh, and he's saying, look, you in the U.S., you could learn from me. You've got you've got rampant violence in your big cities. Learn from my approach of forget about this civil liberty stuff. That's that's for sissies. I'm I am doing this right. And and I mean, just final point here, conservative leaders across the region are echoing his call. Uh, he has a huge presence on Twitter in those countries. He has been taunting the democratically elected governments of Colombia, Chile, Brazil, all of whom are more progressive, saying, hey, you're not delivering the way I'm delivering. And his message is really getting out there. You write in your uh, or you and your co-authors write in the report that this lull in gang violence may just be for the time being. Why do you think that this may not be sustainable? Has this addressed, let's say, the root causes of gangs and crime and violence in El Salvador? No, exactly the right point. So the core, well, there are two core root causes of gang violence in El Salvador and in other countries, but let's just focus on El Salvador for a second. Those gangs came out of a brutal civil war that was fought between 1980 and 1992. The US, remember this was the Reagan era, backed a bloodthirsty death squad government against a popular uprising in that country. And the US helped train the government troops. It brought them to places like the School of the Americas. It taught them to be brutal murderers. Um, the military in that civil war had a, had a rule where you could only be in the military for two years, and then you had to step down. Many of those people left and went to Los Angeles, where there was already a big Salvadoran community, and where gangs were starting. There were gangs in, in LA at that time. These folks became the most coveted recruits because they were experienced, trained assassins. And they uh, became the leading forces in the gangs in, in uh, Los Angeles. It spread across the US. Then the US deported many of them back to El Salvador. So the US is complicit in the brutality of the gangs there. But the other thing that you were just alluding to, El Salvador is a very poor country. It does not have many 
industries or, or, or good viable livelihoods. Bukele said, I'll create a Bitcoin city. I'll create jobs that way. That went bust. So it's hard to make a living. Most people are farmers. They, they grow corn, they grow beans, but it's hard to make a living. And as long as that country remains desperately poor, that is a recruiting ground for gangs. So that's, that's part of, of what we found. Unless you address those root causes, it's very difficult to end that practice. And one thing, by the way, one final thing I should say on this, Bukele is uh, a hypocrite on this. Yes, he's thrown tons of gang members into jail, but he's also made deals with other gang leaders. He's been friendly. He tried before he, he threw them all in jail. He tried to make deals with gang leaders. He's been friendly with them. Um, and so his hands are not clean either. And um, But he just got reelected for five more years. He said he's going to continue this policy, this policy of suspending all civil liberties, allowing him to arrest whoever he wants, and he'll do it as long as uh, it's necessary. And the greater fear, of course, so in El Salvador, you, like most Latin American countries, a good democratic reform was you can't be elected to consecutive terms. He twisted the constitution. He, he uh, put in power a bunch of his own Supreme Court justices. They said it would be okay for him to run a second time. That's why he ran. That's why he was able to win yesterday. The fear is now he will simply continue that. He'll keep in his own judges and he'll become a dictator for life. This, this is the fear. And um, this is what people across that country who are good, sort of come from a good social justice background, realize they're going to need to fight with everything they've got. As Amnesty International reports, as of October 2023, local victims movements and human rights organizations had recorded more than 73,800 detentions, 327 cases of forced disappearances, approximately 102,000 people imprisoned, making El Salvador the country with the world's highest incarceration rate, a rate of prison overcrowding of approximately 236% and more than 190 deaths in state custody. Your report states that among the over 70,000 people that Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele has incarcerated under abysmal conditions and the use of torture are tens of thousands of innocent people, including five water defenders and numerous labor leaders. No evidence has been presented by the government to back the arrest of the five water defenders and charges against them should be dropped under a 1992 amnesty. So among the 70,000 incarcerated, what makes the water defenders so important, John? Why single them out when it comes to the Bukele government's poor record on human rights, especially when it comes to incarceration and prisoner abuse and torture? Yeah, thanks so much for asking that, Chuck, because it allows us to talk for a few minutes here about one of the most inspiring stories to come out of Latin America in the past two decades. Um, we at IPS and many of our, our allied groups in North America were able to join with Salvadoran groups starting in 2003, 2004, when mining companies came into that country in a, in, in a big way. They came in as gold prices and other minerals prices were rising as China was, was buying more minerals. And they came into this poor country promising jobs, promising revenues, a share of the, of the profits of, of the mines. And people were initially 
positive. Who who doesn't want good jobs? It gets to the core of that problem we were just talking about of 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 deep poverty. And then they began to talk to their neighbors who had mining, Honduras, uh, Guatemala, and elsewhere, and big industrial mines. And there's a lot of gold in Central America um, and, and in this country. But big industrial mines are deadly to the environment, deadly to the water. This is what they learn. You use cyanide to separate gold from the rock. That contaminates the river. And El Salvador is a small nation already very environmentally degraded, deforested, and so on. And people just said, we can't have this kind of mining here. They built an amazing movement. Um, they had created, we, we helped create a group called International Allies that worked with them. They convinced people in the communities to oppose mining. They built a national coalition. And they began the push to create uh, a piece of legislation that would make El Salvador the first nation in the world to ban all mining to save its rivers. And in 2017, in a historic vote, they voted, their legislator, le legislature had been convinced, it voted unanimously to ban all mining. So this is incredible. Now, Bukele comes in, as we've just said, his economy is in a shambles. He made a bet on Bitcoin that went bad. So we part in this report, we bring up the evidence that he is poking around trying to figure out a way to overturn that mining ban, bring back in the mining companies, get the revenues which he which he desperately needs. Um, and what he did that that you started your question with is a year ago, almost a, exactly a year ago right now, he took five of the leaders of that movement and he threw them in jail on a trumped up charge that goes all the way back to the Civil War. And uh, he has kept these charges. He's charging them with a war crime from the Civil War. And it is pure and simple intimidation. He knows that he can stay a cool dictator so long as he can keep the opposition down. And he knows he may be able to get back into mining so long as he keeps that opposition down. So that's what he's doing. And I will simply say the good news is hundreds of groups around the world that got involved in that great fight against mining uh, a decade ago have come back together again and are putting pressure on our governments to put pressure on Bukele to drop the charges. It's become a sort of the emblematic case of everything that is wrong with Bukele. And we're trying to make it and our allies there enough of a nuisance so that Bukele will just say, I want this to go away, drop the charges. Um, so this will remain, this is, if you will, the human face of the horrors of Bukele. He's also arrested 17 labor leaders and other civil society leaders. And we are very worried that now he's got free reign for another five years. He's going to throw more civil society leaders in, in jail. And a whole lot of groups inside and outside the country are going to fight hard to make to make noise about that. Um, Chuck, one thing that's disgusting in this is when Bukele started these mass arrests, the Biden administration critiqued him. They made noise. They said, this is wrong. They said, you're subverting democracy. But starting about five or six months ago, they shifted course and they privately admit they, they just decided the criticism wasn't working. And so they began an open embrace, if you will, of Bukele. And so they are not complaining. They claim they care about civil society leaders. They don't want them in jail. 
but they've shown us no evidence that they're backing this up. So part of the campaigning right now is not just inside El Salvador against Bukele there, but in the US and Canada and other countries on our government saying, do not stay silent in the face of this tearing apart of democracy. Is the Biden administration staying silent when it comes to human rights abuses in El Salvador because of the potential for a free trade agreement between El Salvador and China? Is that what has changed the way in which the Biden administration views human rights in El Salvador? Yeah, well, I hate to say it. I mean, and this this would be true of Biden, but most U.S. administrations in the final year before a national election here. So we're coming up on a big election, Biden versus Trump. In that final year, often the U.S. government changes policies to try to create the best climate for re-election. And in El Salvador, I think that there's two issues. You've picked up one, which is um, that the U.S. wants its, quote, allies in Latin America not to get too cozy with China. In neighboring Honduras, they've just signed a whole set of deals with China that made the U.S. very upset. Bukele is being a tiny bit more cautious, although he's been negotiating with the Chinese. So what it looks like the U.S. is doing behind the scenes is they're saying, okay, Bukele, you keep an arm's length from the Chinese, one, and two, don't let more Salvadorans leave the country. We don't want more Salvadorans at the border. The Republicans are making the border the number one issue in the election. We don't want you to contribute to that. And so it appears there's an implicit, quiet alliance with Bukele that as long as migration is down a bit, it's hard to get those figures, so we don't know exactly what it is, and as long as he doesn't sign a free trade agreement with China, the US won't be openly critical of him. This is horrible, it's cynical, it goes against everything that the US is supposed to stand for. We, of course, have seen them do this in many other countries. Uh, and so that is that is what appears to be happening, and that is what requires us to put even more pressure on the Biden administration not to stay silent. By the way, there's one big leverage point here, which is here's Bukele. He, he is not going to stay popular if the economy stays this bad. So he is desperately trying to get a new loan from this big international monetary fund. The U.S. has the most important vote in the International Monetary Fund. And so we have been saying to them, don't you dare vote yes on a loan to this country that is using Bitcoin, which facilitates money laundering, goes against everything you say you are for. Vote no on that. And so the big test will be, can we convince the Biden folks to vote no on this IMF loan? If Bukele doesn't get that, it's much harder for him to convince people that they should be enthusiastic about him. It's not very cool to be overseeing mass poverty, even if you've thrown a bunch of people in the gangs in jail. So that'll be a key factor, not just in El Salvador, but you started talking about the whole hemisphere. That is a key, which is can democracies like in Chile and Colombia and Brazil that have progressive governments, can they deliver more to their people than this cool dictator who's thrown so many people in jail. So has the public in El Salvador, do you think they've just changed their mind when it comes to metallic mining in the country? I mean, here you have Bukele, who's 
telling people that he supports this kind of mining. It's a hard-fought victory by activists in El Salvador to get that kind of mining prohibited only six years, seven years ago, 2017. So has the public just shifted on metallic mining uh, because they're so desperate right now due to the collapse of the economy? Often, you know, which was contributed by Bukele and cause and trying to uh, have investing so much of COVID money, two hundred million dollars in COVID money, into Bitcoin. So, is this absolutely necessary because of the economic situation in the country? And has the and because of that, has that made the public just change their mind? No. Here's some good news, which is that there's no indication that the public has shifted their opinion on mining. There have been a couple of polls, public opinion polls there. I mean, the last big one was 2015. It showed 80% of the public opposed to mining, not only because they knew all the environmental horrors that come from it, but also they had been educated around the business model here, which is these big mining companies come in, they take all your gold, and they only give you back 2% of the profits. It's a piddling amount compared to what they are getting themselves. So the public also knows that this does not bring prosperity. And and by the way, 1% of that goes to the federal government, which Bukele will keep and put in his pocket. 1% goes to the local government. So for the majority of people in El Salvador, they get no benefits from from gold mining coming back. So every indication we have, there was massive education done, very brilliant, beautiful, popular education by the social movements there, by the environmental movement there. So people get it that gold mining is a bad thing. It will be unpopular if he he tries to bring it back. And that's the best thing we all have going in this fight to keep metals mining out of there. Uh, One other thing about Bukele, and cool dictators everywhere, even uncool dictators, they care about public opinion. Bukele wants to be popular, and therefore a key to preventing mining from coming back is making it clear that that is highly unpopular. He knows that this adoration of him, the over 80% of the people who voted for him, could flip around pretty quickly if he does things which are unpopular. So that's what the groups on the ground there and our international allies are are trying to lift up, is to really make it clear why this would be extremely unpopular. And this is where history is so fascinating, Chuck. As you know, one of the great things about El Salvador is a history of dynamic social movements on the ground. Many of them have been scared into submission by Bukele, that you know their leaders have been thrown in jail. This is going to be a really tense period coming up to see if he throws more of them in jail. But they're dynamic. They're strong. They did a brilliant job in this education campaign against mining, and it's it. This could go either way, and it's why it's important for people to continue to be involved in this work with with El Salvador and to continue to put pressure on whatever government we have here in the U.S that it not go along um, with uh, the coolest dictator in the world. Has the global negative reaction that you write about, and you mentioned the worldwide negative reaction to the water defenders arrest, which we'll be getting to in a little bit more, but uh, has that global negative reaction had any impact at all on the Bukele government or their popularity? Or did he turn that into that condemnation into a rallying cry for the people of El Salvador to vote for him? 
Well, so he has, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's interesting. There's no simple answer to that. On the one hand, you are right. Whenever people criticize him, he viciously he pours a huge amount of money into clever social media. So he goes after the attackers. Congressman Jim McGovern of Massachusetts has led the human rights critique of, of Bukele. And every time he speaks, the Bukele people just massively, the trolls come out and go after Jim McGovern. However, on the uh, we got very quickly, they were arrested a year ago. Within a week, we had 251 organizations around the world that had signed a petition condemning this. We kept the pressure up. We did, we did press conferences. We put out reports. We did delegations. And in September of last year, so seven months into the arrest, um, the government actually stepped back and allowed them to leave prison and be under house arrest. They were worried these are six older guys who are not in great health, and those prisons are hellholes, including torture. They were afraid, I believe, that we believe that those guys, if one of them died, they become the symbol of everything wrong with Bukele. So he, he did give in to global public opinion, if you will, and let them out into house arrest. The charges are still against them. They're still going to go to trial. Um, but... We won one round, and it was a very important, and people in El Salvador were blown away. Nobody else had been released into house arrest. Uh, so the international pressure can have an impact, and we're going to have to figure out clever ways to continue that uh, now that there's five more years of, of of this dictator. But as you point out in the report, not only is there no evidence that these five, the Santa Marta Five, uh, committed any crime. Not only is there no body that has been uh, claimed to be the murder victim's body, but there is amnesty that happened with the uh, National Reconciliation Law, the peace process that happened back in 1992. Did that peace hinge on amnesty? Would there have been peace without amnesty? And for that matter, could there be peace without amnesty? Yeah, this is really important, Chuck. And in, in some ways, this is, I came into the Institute for Policy Studies in the 1980s during the Civil War, and IPS was very involved in the resistance against Reagan funding the death squads in that country. Um, and, so, and there were many similar battles around Latin America and around the world. They were resolved in the end through remarkable work by the United Nations and by different governments in figuring out peace accords that actually could end the violence. And the one in El Salvador was historic in that it, it acknowledged that the only way to get uh, a insurgent force that had been fighting against the death squads to lay down their arms was to give amnesty. I mean, a truth commission had come out with a report that said 85% of the atrocities in that war were done by government forces, only 5% by the insurgent FMLN. But in order to get them to lay down arms, it was essential that they have an amnesty for those people. The five water defenders were combatants in that war on the FMLN side, therefore they have amnesty. Now what Bukele is trying, and, and those peace accords uh, were passed, they were signed, they became a model for peace accords around the world, including 
the one in Colombia, which was the most recent of the big, really difficult armed conflicts between government and, and insurgent forces. They're extremely important in bringing societies together that have been torn apart by civil war. Bukele's approach is they're a sham. And that civil war was a sham. And it divided the country and we should throw out the peace accords and, and get on with our lives. Anyone who has spent time in El Salvador and other countries, South Africa, Colombia, other countries that have been through horrible civil wars knows these are essential to build a peaceful society and to get people through the trauma of civil war. So this case is also a fight over that history, a fight over the importance of peace agreements and sticking with them. And these five are the next stage, unless Bukele drops the charges, which is our demand, the trial is going to be a trial over these peace accords because they should just be thrown out uh, because of this amnesty. And Bukele's people are going to argue that it's, it, that it's a sham. And so I think the world's attention, again, is going to get focused in on this because El Salvador is a tiny little country, 6.3 million people. And yet, as we've just said, Bukele, the dictator, has become a symbol for the right around the world. This trial will become a symbol for the larger fight as to whether or not internationally agreed upon rules can stay in place. The sim similar thing is happening right now, of course, in Gaza, where the South Africans have bought a case under the United Nations Genocide Convention of 1948. The Israelis are trying to rip that up. The South Africans are putting it forward. And it's critical. That one is critical for Gaza, but it's critical for the broader world and, and what kind of world we're building and what kind of rules we believe in. Likewise, this trial is critical for saying that peace agreements that end brutal civil wars must be respected. We are speaking with John Kavanaugh, co-author of State of Deception, a fact-finding report on El Salvador's detained water defenders, the potential return of environmentally destructive mining, and the state of human rights under the newly re-elected Bukele uh, administration. John is a former UN economist, a senior advisor at the Washington-based Institute for Policy Studies, and you can find out more about the Institute at ips-dc.org. Follow them on Twitter at IPS underscore DC. So does the policy of supporting Bukele have bipartisan support here in the States? Can we vote for support or vote support for uh, Bukele out of office in the U.S.? Does the 2024 November election have any impact on what he might be doing over in his next five-year term in office? Yeah, absolutely. So Trump's, so Trump, if Trump is reelected, he will embrace dictators around the world. And Bukele is one that he truly admires because of his skill. Uh, Trump thinks he's good at social media. He has a lot to learn from Bukele, but he admires him. So if Trump comes in, total support, and it will be a very hard period for people who care about human rights, human rights defenders in El Salvador. Biden's reelected. Our history shows that we will have a couple of years where human rights concerns can again be injected into U.S. policy. He won't be worried about re-election, and the good news is he's, if, if Biden is elected, he certainly won't be re-elected again. Uh, he can't be here. And so um, 
there will be much more openness to the criticism that his policy is duplicitous, that it's that it's ignoring human rights, that it's ignoring civil society at the core of uh, of any democracy. And so, our our hope would be. I mean, our hope is to keep the pressure on through this year. But but if Biden is reelected, to see it as an opening for the for the U.S. to again change course and become critical and withhold aid if he is putting more and more people in jail, if he's continuing uh, this state of exception. So why is the opposition right now unable to offer a popular alternative to the voting public in El Salvador? What happened to the FMLN and that spirit of revolution once it went from fighting a civil war against authoritarianism to becoming a a political movement? You know, it's it's an interesting question. They did finally win the presidency, the FMLN, twice in 2009, 2014. It was under an FMLN government that the mining ban was put in place in 2017. However, they did not significantly address either the issue of gangs. They didn't reduce gang violence by much, and they did not really increase the 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 economic viability of the country so they they however they did do some amazing things like uh the mining ban when it came to the elections you had you know old candidates who did not have particularly new ideas from both the traditional left-wing fmln government candidate and on the right and then you had this young dynamic guy who'd been the mayor of san salvador and who was incredibly savvy with social media. The older parties weren't. And he appealed to the youth. He won the youth vote massively, and he became president. Both of those parties, the, the, the left and the right parties, have atrophied. There, there has not been the dynamism that there needs to be. And I think, in a, in a way, we're watching the end of a, of a whole several decades of politics since the end of the Cold War. Many of those old parties that have have not been dynamic, have not adapted, um, have fallen by the side. I think the brighter future, and Salvadorans are looking at this, is look at the parties that put dynamic presidents into power in Colombia, Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez, Chile, Brazil. These are governments rooted in worker rights. They're rooted in an environmental sensibility. They're rooted in a sense of uh, of gender equity and reproductive rights, and so on, not not reproductive rights in in Brazil, but dynamic new movements that have taken power. If so, people in El Salvador are looking at those movements to see how they could adapt, and I think new you'll see new formations emerge. Whether the FMLN can adapt to that and be central to it remains to be seen. But there's a thirsting of younger people for a new politics that is more broad in that sense, Uh, labor, environment, women's rights, uh, the the full spectrum of issues. If Bukele is opposed to El Salvador's democratic institutions that were created from the peace accords that were won by the revolutionaries in the Civil War, is Bukele for a reinstitution of the governments prior to peace, of those dictatorial governments? Is this the old power structure reasserting its dictatorial power and are El Salvadorians, are they even nostalgic for that time? Seeing it was sure problematic when it comes to democracy, but at least they were more safe and secure. 
you know, that we have to be honest that traditional left and right governments across the hemisphere have largely failed, mainly pursuing more free market policies over the past 40 years. So there's enormous public disillusionment with them. Is there a desire to go back to the horrible dictators of the 1960s and 70s? I don't think so. So I think that Bukele is, he is trying to seize on this moment to say, we've had 40 years of failure of traditional politics. I'm going to try something new. And I think I can deliver to you both security and prosperity. I think where he will fail and where he will, and the public will turn against him, is he has no viable plan around prosperity, and he is corrupt. So part of the trick of the next five years is getting those stories out that you started the show with about his corruption. There are many cases of, of corruption. Once the people see him stealing money uh, and failing on the economy, they, they will turn against him. But right now, Yes, El Salvador was the country most affected by gang violence. And the fact that he has greatly reduced that gang violence makes him popular for now. Many of the voters in El Salvador yesterday were saying to people who were interviewing them, I, I cherish this security. I don't like some of the other things he's doing. I don't like him throwing people in jail who are innocent, but he needs more time. So he now has more time, and I think it will be a time that will show he can't deliver on the other things. And when more and more news comes out about torture and abuse in prison, I think that popularity will fade. But this is a marathon. This is a long struggle, uh, not a sprint. And the good news is social movements in El Salvador and internationally are they're used to marathons. And I think they're up for this one. You mentioned how the crime and violence are a lingering legacy of the Civil War. Is crime and violence due to neoliberalism as well? And if so, how can neoliberalism cause this crime, this violence, and this surge of gang activity? Yeah, so absolutely. In El Salvador and across Latin America, these policy since the Ronald Reagan era of the 80s. Some down there, they call it neoliberalism. Some people call it free trade, but it's a set of policies that favor the private sector, that favor corporations over the rights of people and over a strong government regulation. It has been an utter failure everywhere. And it's been an utter failure in El Salvador. Uh, and so Anybody, I mean, what we're, we're in a very bizarre moment now where anyone who says they're opposed to that, like this you know, extreme libertarian in Argentina, Malay, he comes in and saying neoliberalism did all this, I'm going to do it super neoliberalism. So <laughs> as opposed to Bukele, who simply says he doesn't, he doesn't claim to have any economic magic except for Bitcoin, which didn't work. He's more just focused on the the security issue. But deep down, people care in a country like El Salvador deeply about two things, both security, but also an economic future for themselves and their children. Neoliberalism, and he is largely continuing those policies, can't deliver. We now have four decades of evidence on that. So that is where I think he will fail. And the people who will succeed are ones that put together new alternatives. And I, I really do think that 
Lula is trying to do this in Brazil. Petro is in Colombia. Um, it's very hard because they don't have big majorities. Uh, and Boric is trying to do it in Chile. They're all, though, have big neoliberal forces in their legislatures who are fighting against them. But those are the kinds of leaders who have a chance of of pulling us into a new era, post-neoliberal era, if you will. One last question for you, John. We have been speaking with John Kavanaugh, co-author of State of Deception, a fact-finding report on El Salvador's detained water defenders, the potential return of environmentally destructive mining, and the state of human rights under the just re-elected Bukele administration. John's a former UN economist, senior advisor of the Washington-based Institute for Policy Studies, co-author of 2021's The Water Defenders, How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed. You can find out more about the Institute for Policy Studies at ips-dc.org, and you can follow them on Twitter at IPS underscore DC. One last question for you, John. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that in the, uh, sorry, uh, overall, we were shocked at the level of fear, suffering, and corruption in El Salvador. Fear because the detentions are so arbitrary and sudden that many parents fear their teenage kids could get picked up. At least in the north of the country, as mentioned, this fear has led to increased out-migration to the United States, particularly by youth. Is the U.S. supporting an authoritarian government that is causing migrants to flee north to the U.S. seeking refuge? Are El Salvadorans forced to flee from their homes by a U.S.-supported dictator? That then They then seek the freedom of the United States. And is the U.S. allowing them to seek refuge from the dictator the U.S. supports? Because my biggest question, I guess, is, you know, what does the Biden administration threat of closing the border mean for the people of El Salvador? Yeah, it's, it, it's well, I will say, having spent a lot of time in El Salvador working on the book, uh, The Water Defenders, and working in, in concert with groups down there, every Salvadoran, not every, but the vast majority of Salvadorans we met and talked to would, like people everywhere in the world, prefer to stay at home. They badly want to stay at home. They prefer the culture. They prefer everything, the food, the, the country, they, they want to stay there, but they will not stay there if their children are being pulled into gangs. They will not stay there if they can't make a living for their kids. So death, the, the, it's clear what the solution is. The solution is economic models, economic experiments that give them a future, and also a, a strong set of institutions that keep gangs off the street. But you need to do that through the rule of law, not through mass arrests. Will the US ever support that? <laughs> I don't know. The US's line today is, we didn't say anything about the elections. We wanted to let the Salvadoran people decide. They've decided, uh, and so on. What was clear, as we've just said, is there weren't really any alternatives in that election. And that for the moment, since the country is safer, Bukele is popular. But I think the key thing going forward is he's not going to remain popular. He can't, once, once this is over, he's going to look for new enemies. He's going to throw new people in jail. When that happens, what does the U.S. do? And we need very strong pressure from groups in this country 
on the U.S. government to do something. There's a wonderful group called the Committee in Solidarity with the people of El Salvador or CISPES that's been at the center of this fight going all the way back to the Civil War. I urge people to look them up. Come to us at IPS. We'll continue this fight for the next five years and beyond uh, with groups in El Salvador. There's a lot people can do to put pressure on the administration uh, I want to say one congresswoman who just led an effort, Jim McGovern, I mentioned, Ilhan Omar just did a beautiful uh, letter down there before with, with uh, 13 other members of Congress, putting pressure on the U.S. to, to speak out against this illegal election. Um, and she, of course, got a massive response by the Bukele people, all sorts of trolls, but she's used to that. So there are a lot of heroes in this as well, both in El Salvador and here in the United States. And I really urge your listeners to get involved. Many of them have been involved going all the way back to the Civil War. So thank you. But there's a lot more to be done. John, I interviewed for a job in the late 80s at CISPIS. And uh, I made the mistake of dressing up as nice as I could, the best clothes <laughs> I had. And so I showed up and everybody's wearing jeans and T-shirts. They didn't give me the job. And I asked them why on the phone. And they said, because you look too much like an FBI agent. <laughs> you know, we brought the co-founder of CISPES, Angela Sanbrano, wonderful lawyer from LA, on this delegation. And it was beautiful to hear her stories from that era. But I'll tell her that she made one big mistake, which was not to hire you. <laughs> well, John, I wouldn't be here today if she had. So thank you so much, John, for being back on the show. Really appreciate it. You know I'm going to annoy you in the future. Great to hear your voice again, sir. And uh, have a happy new year. Great to be with you. Thanks so much, Chuck. Take care. Live from the United States, where the press has the freedom to be propaganda. This is hell. And remember, the press can be propaganda, not only in the way it reports the news, but also in the way or the news it chooses and not to cover at all. Like what is happening in El Salvador, a U.S.-backed authoritarian destroying the economy with Bitcoin, then trying to save the economy he destroyed on a scam by destroying the nation's only fresh water supply, who has cracked down on democracy and tried to reinstate a dictatorship while making life so miserable that El Salvadoran refugees are fleeing for the U.S. border where they are being turned away by the same United States that created the conditions from which they are fleeing. If you learned that or anything from John Cavanaugh about the situation in El Salvador, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener supported. We take no grant money. We take no commercial money. Completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. And if you do go to patreon.com slash this is hell, you can see how much we are bringing in every month from Patreon, which is our only steady source of revenue. So you know, if you go there, you'll be able to tell we definitely need your support on our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Yeah, I got COVID. Not like right now, I just tested positive for COVID during the interview with John Kavanaugh. But I am definitely suffering some post-traumatic stress, if not more, than not only from not only having the virus, but also having to live through those earliest years of the pandemic. And from the ongoing pandemic that has killed around the same number of people in the U.S. since early October as Palestinians have been killed in the war in Gaza, which is not an insignificant number, and those are not insignificant lives, no matter what the establishment media and... It, the establishment, government, leadership, and its media want you to believe. 
So immediately after listening to today's show, you can go over to patreon.com slash this is hell, subscribe to our weekly bonus pod, and hear my rant on how I have COVID. And the way I'm still suffering from COVID is probably the way you are still suffering too, whether you realize it or not. Also last week on Patreon, we played an interview from two weeks before the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq. That interview was an attempt at answering the question, why do they hate us? Which President George W. Bush and his administration, speechwriters, launched into the cultural zeitgeist only nine days after 9-11. Nobody was asking such a dumb question that revealed the nation's willful ignorance of everything beyond its borders. That is, until W. used the bully pulpit to bully the world with the declaration of his forever war, which we are still fighting to this day. As the conversation came up during last week's uh, interview with Dr. Maha Halal on the U.S., 9-11, Israel, and October 7th, we started our March 1st, well, sorry, we shared our March 1st, 2003 talk with the late great Islam scholar of the Muslim Institute, Meryl Wynne Davies, on the book she co-wrote with award-winning writer and cultural critic Ziauddin Sardar, entitled, Why Do People Hate America? This is a must-listen because both Biden and Netanyahu are reusing the same worn old tropes again, and this time may lead to the regional war with Iran that they've always wanted, if not a world war. But the only way you can hear me rant about how I still suffer from COVID, and I'm betting you are too, but you may not know it, and a 2003 interview on why they hate America, whoever they are, it doesn't really matter. We keep using the same old, same old excuses for wars on the Middle East. The only way you can hear all of that is by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. By doing so, you also get a discount code word for all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. So we really need your help, folks. Our finances, as you might have guessed, not that great. And we're not great at capitalism, which makes sense. I know we do not live in a meritocracy and our whole business model seems to be proving that every day, month, week of every year. But we do not take any outside money. The only way we financially survive is through you. And that survival is increasingly suspect. So please show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support and seeing all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell. Chris, what is this week's question from Helen? How are our listeners responding on Patreon? The question of hell, for question of hell, the, sorry about that. The question of hell was brought forth by Dan K from the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group. The question is, how long can this go on? And my apologies again, Chris, for giving you the wrong question from hell earlier. And I should have caught that earlier. That's on me as well. Uh, <laughs> The first answer is from Keith, who wrote, Oh, this is just getting started. All right. And Keith, again, same person, wrote, Until morale improves. All right. And another one, Keith is pretty repetitive. <laughs> uh, it is, um, Keith wrote the third one, If you have to ask, then you can't endure it. All right. Bruce wrote, Imagine a fire in a fire pit. The fire ends when all is reduced to ash. The response to your question is that this goes on until all is reduced to nothing. Of course, we could pretend to be the willful creatures that we advertise ourselves to be and just stop. Imagine that. Kind of poetic. 
and I'm yeah. starting to wonder if Keith is Bruce as well. <laughs> and then um, Tom wrote, I'm afraid you'll have to be more vague than that <laughs> if you want a direct answer from me. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> David wrote, until the end of human existence. Okay. Uh, Jeff wrote, to quote Grandpa Joe, as long as it takes. <laughs> Keith makes a comeback here, and he writes, <laughs> until the sun mercifully becomes a red giant. Now that's a good answer to the question from Mel. Uh, Dan Rhodes, you got something better to do? <laughs> Neil Rhodes. Is that Dan K? by the way? Yes, it is. It says the same person. Yeah, it is actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Left the question from Hell at our Facebook, uh, welcome to Hellhole Facebook page. Go ahead. And Neil wrote, until Punxsutawney Phil predicts a nuclear winter. <laughs> Very timely on the Groundhog Day thing. Very nice. Any more? And last one is from Essential. And uh, they wrote, to collection. <laughs> really? That's what they wrote. <laughs> okay. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of this is uh, whatever this is hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can post it on our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hell Hole. You can direct message it to us via X at thisishellradio. You can post it in our Discord community. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Or if you are a subscriber, you can get first crack at answering the question every week at patreon.com com slash this is hell but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following jeff dorchin and the moment of truth chris what is jeff talking about during the moment of truth this week jeff drags the atheists to jesus and now it's time for the past inside the present with dr sebastian vopper when he gives us the historical context from the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. After a few segments that were sort of interludes in the ongoing series, we return today to the history of Zionism, which at this point becomes more or less fully intertwined with the history of the state of Israel itself. Last we checked, it was the 1920s, a third and fourth Aliyah were underway. Remember, the Aliyah describes waves of Jewish emigration out of Europe to settle in Palestine. Um, also, not necessarily just out of Europe, but let's be honest here, most of those people came out of Europe. Uh, the third Aliyah came in direct response to the October Revolution in the Russian Empire. Uh, whoops, now it's the Soviet Union. Uh, and the Soviet Union went through quite some chaos after its founding. Uh, many Russian Jews experienced continued harassment and persecution there. The Zionist movement had just gained the endorsement of the League of Nations, uh, and the Balfour Declaration just happened, um, and Mandatory Palestine had just been, you know, created. And this made settling in Palestine seem like a much safer option for many Russian Jews than did staying behind in a country that was tearing itself apart in a bloody civil war, for which the Jews would prob probably receive a good amount of blame. Likely because some blockheads would point to the protocols of the elders of Zion and say, look, it says right here the Jews want to sow chaos, so it's all their fault. Uh, the immigrants that 
came during the Third Aliyah were largely socialist Zionists. Because remember, as with everything, it is more complicated. And with Zionism, there is more than just one Zionism. Uh, so these socialist Zionists were basically down uh, with the ideas of the Bolsheviks, but not with the mass persecution by all the other people. But they brought their socialism with them and contributed to the establishment of the kibbutzim. And because nuance is important and because I do not want anyone to accuse me of painting everything Israel does as a bad thing, the kibbutzim were actually legit great. Because if you want to point to actually working communist communities, that's where you actually have some. And they lasted for pretty long, too. Uh, there are obviously also things to criticize about them, both in the way that they eventually turned away from communism and also for their role in the general settler colonial project that is Israel. But that just as an aside, I might have to do a whole segment of them, too, because this whole thing just spirals out of control. Uh, the subsequent fourth aliyah took place between 1924 and 1928 and brought about 80,000 new Jewish immigrants to mandatory Palestine. Most of these people came from Poland and Hungary now, where violent anti-Semitism rose sharply in these years. Also, the situation in the Soviet Union was still not settling down, so more people came from there as well. What's notable, too, is that people from these parts of the world would previously have sought to cross the Atlantic and settle in the United States. But here, a new immigration regime had taken hold in 1924, introducing sharp quotas on nationalities, which restricted Jewish immigration from these Eastern European countries. Most of the people, especially uh, in the fourth Aliyah, settled in the Palestinian cities, um, foremost in Tel Aviv. And most of them were also middle class, so they were, were middle class urbanites. And at the same time, mandatory Palestine was facing its own financial crisis and a massive wave of unemployment. Uh, more than 20,000 people actually left mandatory Palestine during this period. Uh, the Zionist movement tried its best to increase employment opportunities, and in 1928, the Va'at Leumi, the Jewish National Council, took over as the de facto government of the Jewish community in mandatory Palestine. In August of 1929, then violence erupted on the streets of Jerusalem. The inciting incidents for these riots related uh, to access to the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, the ancient Western Wall of the Second Temple, which is one of the most holy sites for Judaism. But it's also one of the most holy sites of Islam, since Muslims lay claim to the wall as part of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, the third holiest site of their faith. Muslims feared that the Zionists was essentially declare the site a synagogue and refuse Muslim access to it. A mandatory Palestinian commission, um, well, British commission basically, had ruled in 1925 that Jews could not bring chairs or other objects to the wall, uh, you know, so that they didn't do the whole, you know, cage match thing with a, with a folding chair. Uh, this disgruntled some Jewish folks. Uh, more Orthodox Jews would bring room dividers since they uh, like their religious gatherings strictly segregated by sex. And uh, this was, for the most part, ignored by the authorities. But in 1928, Orthodox Jews again brought room dividers. And this time, the authorities did not just stand idly by. And a kerfuffle between police, onlookers, and worshippers ensued. But in this initial kerfuffle, nobody was seriously injured. Uh, the incident, however, inflamed tempers on both sides. Small, small further incidents followed, and then the Mufti of Jerusalem, Haj Amin al-Husseini, fanned the flames further by warning about Zionist plots to take over the Al-Aqsa Mosque. 
Meanwhile, the British had declared the wall to be um, Muslim property, which further angered the Zionists. Remember how I said there is more than one form of Zionism? Well, one more extreme and kind of right-wing, almost fascist form of Zionism was called revisionist Zionism, led by a guy called Vladimir Jabotinsky. Uh, Jabotinsky had organized populist youth movements, and on August 14, 1929, a 6,000-strong group of youths marched onto the Wailing Wall as a protest against the decision to declare it a Muslim property. This action had not been sanctioned by the Zionist leadership. Both Jabotinsky's group and the Supreme Muslim Council of Palestine began to agitate against each other in the following days. Protests and counter-protests followed, and things really got out of hand when a Jewish teenager was stabbed to death following a misunderstanding and ensuing quarrel over a lost football in the outskirts of Jerusalem. Individual groups of Jews all over Jerusalem began attacking Arabs and vice versa. On August 23rd, thousands of Arabs from the surrounding area flocked to Jerusalem, and there they sought to gather and pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque as a sign of taking ownership of the place. A rumor was spreading among the, uh, that the Zionists, a rumor was spreading that the Zionists were gathering a large crowd there to march onto the temple and claim it for the Jews and kick the Muslims out. Due to the ongoing street violence, many of these Muslims came to the city armed with knives and sticks. So Jerusalem had effectively become a powder keg that was already on fire, just waiting to explode. Over the course of the following days, violent riots between Zionists and Arabs started in Jerusalem and quickly spread all across Palestine. Hundreds of people were injured, hundreds of people died on both sides during these creatively named Palestine Riots of 1929. The most significant outcome of these riots was that, the, that most Jewish families were driven out of the city of Hebron. The brutal irony of this is, of course, that the Hebron Jews had been living there for centuries and were largely not Zionists at all. Um, but also the riots resulted in the creation of the right-wing Zionist terror organization Igrun, which becomes important during the formation of the State of Israel in the late 1940s. Just after the conclusion of the riots, then the fifth Aliyah began. And this wave of immigration began slow, but drastically picked up after Hitler's ascension to power in Germany in 1933. The numbers are not quite clear. Uh, many people who came to Palestine during this period did so without permits due to the overwhelming terror the Nazis enacted on the Jews in Germany. And as discussed two weeks ago, the Nazis initially refused to let Jews exit Germany just like that until they entered into a transfer agreement with the Jewish Agency of Palestine, the Havara Agreement, which allowed German Jews to liquidate their assets by German goods with the money received and leave the country with these goods, which they could then sell in Palestine and not just leave penniless. Between a quarter million to 300,000 Jews immigrated to mandatory Palestine during this period. Palestinian Arabs saw this with concern. After all, under the British mandate, the Jewish population in Palestine had exploded from mere 57,000 in 1919 to over 320,000 by 1935. And violence between Jews and Arabs flared up again in 1936 after two Jews were killed by Arabs in a small quarrel, and then Jewish gunmen retaliated, which resulted in another eruption of further violence across Palestine. The Grand Mufti of Jerusalem took the incidents as an opportunity to call for a general strike and further protests. The strike lasted from April until October 1936. The Arab leadership sought to force the British to give the Muslim community some political concessions. 
The primary demands were a prohibition on further Jewish immigration, a prohibition on the transfer of Arab lands to Jews, and the establishment of a national elected representative government. The Brits conceded a few things to the Arabs, but also threatened to put Palestine under martial law, and they also began to crack down on open protest. The following year, Arab peasants revolted against British rule, and the Arab insurgents destroyed oil infrastructure, railroads, Jewish-operated farms, and Jewish settlements and neighborhoods. The Brits responded with further escalations. The British army and Palestine police force clashed with protesters, sometimes in open combat. But the Arab side in the conflict was far from homogenous, and internal fights ensued there as well. Some of the British leadership feared the conflict within the Arab camp could result in an inter-Arab civil war. Uh, this period was then again very creatively named as the Arab Revolt of, nine, of, 18, of 1936 to 1939. More than 5,000 Arabs and 300 Jews died in the riots. One of the outcomes was that the mandatory government gave more power and official support to Zionist militias. Another was the collapse of Arab leadership in Palestine and a widespread British-led disarmament of the Arabs by confiscation of weapons from Palestinian Arabs. In his 1999 book, Righteous Victims, A History of the Zionist Arab Conflict, Benny Morris cites Ben-Gurion, stating at the beginning of the riots that, quote, the Arabs are fighting dispossession. Their fear is not of losing land, but of losing the homeland of the Arab people, which others want to turn into the homeland of the Jewish people, end quote. The British rulers, in response to the riots, in response to the riots, uh, but also in response to growing tensions between the greater powers in the world in 1939, decided to try throwing the Arabs a bone. During the revolt, the British Peel Commission had considered separating Palestine into Jewish and Arab partitions. The Arabs outright rejected the plan, and uh, the riots continued. And after the riots, the Brits needed Palestine to remain quiet, and more importantly, to not join with the emerging Axis powers in the global conflict that was brewing on the horizon. In the very creatively again named White Paper of 1939, the British leadership limited Jewish immigration to Palestine to 75,000 for the years of 1940 to 1944. And in 1940, the British High Commissioner prohibited further Jewish land acquisitions. And this effectively closed Palestine for further Jewish immigration. But due to most other countries in the world also closing their doors to Jewish immigrants, the Jews of Europe were now stuck in a place that in the following years would gear up to physically destroy them. And the conflict caused by Jewish immigration to Palestine was still smoldering. And now Chuck has been frantically pointing at the clock for three minutes, so we'll return next week with the Arab-Israeli war and the foundation of Israel. Maybe this time I can actually keep that promise. <laughs> well, Sebastian, it's always great to hear your voice. I hope you're enjoying your new year in uh, Michigan. Anything new, uh, newsworthy in Grand Rapids? What's the big news story, local news story right now? Uh, what's the big news story? I don't know. Something about gunshots on somewhere in in, in the suburbs. Uh, it's it's not a lot. Not a lot of things going on here. Have you uh, had a chance to watch local TV news yet? Uh, we don't really have TV like that. I mean, I guess I could if I if find I, it online. Yeah, 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 something like that. Because I'm telling you, local TV news in Michigan is something to see. It's yeah. Really- I mean, I mean, on on Google News, I I occasionally see this M Live. Yes. Uh, 
stuff where I'm like, really? Like, who who cares? But <laughs> it is yeah. pretty much who cares stuff. Great to hear your voice. Talk to you uh, next a week from Thursday. Next Thursday, because we're not doing a Monday show next week. Right. Next Thursday. Okay. Yeah. Gives me some more time to prepare. <laughs> Talk to you then. All right. Wait. Bye. Bye. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. And wow, did I do that while discussing El Salvador today with John Cavanaugh. This is Hell. Chris, who are our upcoming guests on this week's show? Rachel Ida Buff will be on to discuss her Boston Review article, The Right Comes from Milwaukee, Why Did the Blue City Agree to Host the Republican National Convention and to Suspend a Hard-Won Police Reform for its Duration. Ida is a writer and professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Do you plan on going up to Milwaukee for the RNC? Not, I'm planning to protest the DNC, but the RNC, I haven't thought about that actually. Because I've actually talked to quite a few people during office hours who said that they were making plans. As soon as they announced the dates, they were already making plans up in Milwaukee and that every uh, hotel and everything was already sold out. So oh, wow. it's, it's going to be huge. It's a two-hour drive, so I'm definitely not renting a hotel but, yeah. uh, if I would go. But uh, yeah, i got to think about that actually. Uh, the, next one, the next guest after that will be Bruce E. Levine returns to This Is Hell to talk about his new counterpunch article, Scientific Misconduct and Fraud, the final nail in psychiatry's antidepressant coffin. Bruce is a practicing clinical psychologist. His most recent book, A Professional Without Reason, The Crisis of Contemporary Psychiatry, untangled and unsolved by Spinoza, free thinking, and radical enlightenment. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. This is how office hours are happening this Wednesday, as they do nearly every Wednesday, and they always happen at the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood and unbelievably and I want to stress unbelievably it's supposed to be 60 degrees on Wednesday so as always look for me uh, out back by the fire pit this Wednesday and every Wednesday during This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood there's something else happening at Carrie's Lounge this upcoming uh, weekend that I may be participating in if you all can give me some help. There's some big football game or whatever this weekend, the name of which we are legally not allowed to mention, as its name is a profanity against all that is good on this earth. During this game, downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, there will be a soup competition. The soup er, competition, let's call it a bowl, as a soup does come in bowls. This soup um, bowl, I guess, begins at 5 p.m. You, the tasting public, will then vote in several categories with winners named at halftime of whatever that football game is called. It doesn't really matter. I mean, you're there for the soup. That's Sunday, February 11th. Doors opening at noon. If you want to participate, bring your own soup. Entries are due by 5 p.m., which brings us to how you can help me. I have been attending this event for many, many years and have never made a soup despite having been requested to do so on <laughs> a lot of occasions. This year the pressure is really on and I think I am going to actually do it this year, but I need suggestions on what kind of soup I should make because I, I was looking through all of my cookbooks at my house. I got one called 500 Soups. 
I couldn't find any that looked really good. So send me your soup suggestions and recipes if you got them to chuck at thisishell.com. And if I win with your suggestion or recipe, I promise I'll split the prize with you, whatever the hell the prize is. If you are or will be in the Chicago area and you like soup and bowls, if you want to show off your soup making skills, join me this Sunday, February 11th for the annual soup er, bowl party and competition. The news that scares the news. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.